All right, so today we resume our discussion of Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, starting with chapter 10 and moving our way through chapter 13. Um, and there's a lot going on in this section, enough that I know in advance that if I try and cover everything, it's just not going to happen. Like, I've already run way too long on, on the first of these lectures. I'm going to try and keep the others under control. Um, but the main two things that I definitely want to focus on and, and that we'll, we'll probably spend the bulk of the lecture talking about are, um, on the one hand, the black magic and its exposure chapter where we finally see what Woodland has been up to in, here in Moscow. Um, and then finally, the hero enters in chapter 13. Now that at long last we have a true hero to our story, um, more than just Ivan Homeless currently sitting in his insane asylum cell, um, wishing that he had not made all the decisions that he made. Um, but before we do that, we, I want to sort of go back to the two major themes that we were talking about last time. Namely, I want to talk about the new addition to the Devil's Retinue, now that we have our newest member showing up. Um, and also, um... I want to talk a little bit about the the new judgment that we see in chapter 10 news from yalta um so hopefully we can knock that out pretty quickly um so once again we have a fairly typical setup we have new characters who are affiliated with mass elite in this case it is rimsky the financial director of the variety theater the fin director as it is often abbreviated here and then veronuka who of course is the administrator of the variety theater he is like in charge of the whole thing um and he is the one that is going to get judged in this chapter um now you'll notice that veronuka like uh, Lakodeyev, like Nikonor Ivanovich, like Berlioz, is another high-ranking member of Mass Elite with a lot of power and a lot of discretion over how to use that power. Um, we meet him at the beginning of this chapter, and he's, like, avoiding phone calls because people are, like, annoying him all day, asking for free passes to the theater. It seems that the big show that they're putting on tonight, the Professor Woland's Seances of Black Magic and its full exposure, is super popular. Like, he even mentions at one point that they put up, like, one new poster and the entire city is freaking out about it. Um, so everybody is trying to get a hold of tickets, and Veronuka is withholding his generosity and kind of avoiding people who are trying to, like, get them. Um, but the key issue that develops here is Rimsky and Veronuka get a super lightning telegram from Yalta from Lakodeev. And they are basically sitting around trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Um, because they literally called Lakodeev at 11 o'clock this morning, and it's probably like 1 o'clock in the afternoon or fairly early afternoon at this point. Um, and he was in Moscow, like a couple hours ago and now somehow he is a thousand miles away in Yalta uh, and the telegram that they're getting is from this distant place um, and you'll notice that they're both struggling with this it's for the one thing impossible like you know never mind the technology of today forget it with the technology of the 1950s and 60s like they're puzzling over well maybe he got onto a train no no train goes that fast well maybe he went to the airport no no plane goes that fast like they even entertain the possibility that like they took him to some military airport and like used a fighter jet to like get him to yalta but then they're like well why would they have you know put lakota in a fighter jet at all and what's more it's like a five-minute trip. That's all the time that he's got to before he wakes up um, in Yalta. 
like this is almost immediately after the the issue with um like when Wolin transports him to Yalta in the first place. Um, there have been chapters intervening, and obviously for us, an entire class worth of time. Um, but these events are all happening in very quick succession, and they're trying to figure it out. What's more, there's a criminal investigation involved. The police are involved. And this is what makes it so worrisome. Um, it's one thing when, you know, something weird and inexplicable happens and you're trying to, like, wrap your brain around exactly what happened here. You know, they, they entertain the possibility maybe someone was impersonating Lakotiev here in Moscow or maybe somebody's impersonating him down there in Yalta. Um, but the fact of the matter is they don't have an explanation and that means that they might very well be held to account. Like Berlioz, they are worried about their safety. Um, like Berlioz, he wants to cover all of his bases, make sure the secret police know that he is not, you know, engaged in some kind of espionage or, or other shenanigans. Um, so Veronuka and Rimsky decide that the best explanation that can come up with at the moment is that Lakotiev went to the Yalta Tavern that just opened up that is in Moscow and is only like five minutes away and therefore is much more believable than the fact that he went a thousand miles to the actual Yalta. Um, but more than anything, they just bundle up all the evidence and they're going to take it to the secret police. Like, they dispatch Veronuka to do that just to cover their asses. And this is the point where Woland and company call up and they're like, uh, don't you do it. And Veronuka, of course, ignores them. And then Veronuka, like we saw with Ivan Homeless before, gets it suddenly into his mind that he needs to check on the, the light bulb in the Variety Theater's bathroom. Like, he's got to make sure that the workmen put a wired fence around it or something and then while he's there he gets jumped by behemoth and by uh i believe it's azazello and they both like beat the shit out of him and then last but not least we get the fifth member of our devil's retinue um who this time is the first female member she is a girl and she is completely naked when we meet her like she materializes out of nowhere utterly naked and as she is descriptive both here and later on in the the black magic show um the suggestion is very strong that she is kind of sickly but also that she's got these marks on her on her neck like a scar um it's heavily insinuated that she is a vampire or at least a vampiress of some kind um she sucks blood uh and is you know another member of the devil's retinue here so she apparently kisses Veronuka and he goes black and we don't see what happens to him at this point. But we will see what happened to him later. Um, so you can look forward to that. But here it is, folks. Fifth member of our Devil's Retinue it is this mysterious red-headed woman who spends a lot of her time naked and apparently may or may not be a vampire um, to join in with Azazello, the fanged thug, and Kuroviev, the checked choir, ex-choir master, and Behemoth, the genteel cat. Um... But enough of that. Again, there's more to talk about with the news from Yalta chapter as well as what's going on with Ivan and Ivan splits in two. But I want to focus squarely on the two chapters on Black Magic and its exposure and the hero entering because both of them are very germane um, to what Bulgakov is trying to do. And both of them are very sort of 
important to the two major themes that he's kicking around here the the two of justice and and of sort of like trauma and and victimhood here um so i want to start with the the black magic and its exposure chapter in part because this is what we've kind of been building to for a long time um but also because there's a lot going on here and we get a lot of insights into the way that that woland works and sort of what he's doing in moscow in the first place plus it's just a fascinating sort of you know thumbnail sketch of everything that we've seen before um like this is the entirety of bulgakov's perspective on justice on bureaucratic like excesses everything that we've seen from you know Lakodiev and Veronuka and Nikonor Ivanovich being judged by Woland takes front and center stage here um so let's look at page 118 or so right about when this all starts and we're just going to walk through it because there is you know a lot here um and it is pretty densely packed at that um, so first off in the chapter we see like the act that goes on before Woland and it's like some cyclists or something like there's some clowning around it's all very you know circusy um, while backstage Woland and company are interacting with Rimsky the financial director the very same Rimsky who we just saw talking to Veronuka a little while ago and who is currently perplexed that both Lakodeev and Veronuka have like suddenly disappeared like two of the highest ranking members in charge of the variety theater have vanished just in time for this major performance that they're putting on that everyone is so excited about. Um, and so Rimsky confronts Roland and Koroviev and he's first shocked to find out that Koroviev is even here. Like there was nothing in the contract about an assistant. Not that he's looked it over pretty quickly. Like he mentions uh, in the, the prior chapter that like Lakodiev kind of sprung this contract on him and he's still not quite sure what to expect which doesn't really go along with um, what we heard when Wolin was talking to Lakodiev. Like, Lakodiev made it sound like he had no idea what was going on, but other people did. Here it seems more like Lakodiev was the only person who had anything to do with it, and Wolin was just snowing him the whole time. Um, at any rate, he's introducing himself to Wolin and Koroviev, and they start playing some practical jokes on him. Um, so they, like pickpocket his watch and you know press to digitate it like magic show style um and of course we've got behemoth who like pours himself a glass of water with the the carafe and stuff and like puts the stopper back in and wipes himself and everyone's like wow that is one classy cat damn straight behemoth is one classy cat and we are not done with behemoth's classiness yet um but at this point, we also get introduced to the master of ceremonies for our Black Magic and its Exposure show, George Bengalski. Um, and Bengalski is a pretty typical master of ceremonies. Like, he is all banter, all, you know, lightness. But notice, too, that he is under the gun here. Um, like everyone else we've encountered, there is the looming specter of party politics and Soviet power sort of informing what he does and how he talks about it. Um, so take a look here at page 119 when he introduces um, Woland and company to the crowd. He says, And now, citizens, Bengalski began, smiling his baby smile, There is about to come before you. Here Bengalski interrupted himself and spoke in a different tone. I see the audience has grown for the third part. We've got half the city here. 
I met a friend the other day and said to him, why don't you come to our show? Yesterday we had half the city, and he says to me, I live in the other half. Bengalski paused, waiting for a burst of laughter. But as no one laughed, he went on, And so, now comes the famous foreign artiste, Monsieur Woland, with a seance of black magic. Well, both you and I know, here Bengalski smiled a wise smile, that there's no such thing in the world and that it's all just superstition. And Maestro Woland is simply a perfect master of the technique of conjuring, as we shall see from the most interesting part, that is, the exposure of this technique. And since we're all of us to a man, both for technique and for its exposure, let's bring on Mr. Woland! Notice the speech here. Notice what he focuses on. Like, first off, he obviously flubs things. Like, Bulgakov is kind of quick to show us, you know, Bengalski struggling with the crowd today. Um, and part of that is, you know, he is surprised that so many people have shown up. Like, the the Black Magic and its exposure section of the show was only supposed to be like the third part of a three-part act. And yet, apparently, the the theater has filled the capacity between the second and third components of the show. Like, everyone is there specifically to see Woland and company. What's more, when he jokes about it, like when he makes the joke, that kind of bad, awful joke about, like, I was in the other half of the city, nobody laughs. It's clear that this audience is intent on the show. Like, they are here to see Woland specifically, and they're not going to put up with Bengalski and his nonsense. Um, but notice, too, what Bengalski emphasizes about the show. Yes, it's Monsieur Woland and his seance of black magic, but he emphasizes to the crowd that none of them believe in black magic, that it is all nonsense. They are all good Soviet communists. They do not believe in supernatural forces. So what they are interested in is not, you know, black magic, the seance, the, the tricks, but rather the technique and its exposure. But notice, too, that the reaction isn't quite what Bengalski is counting on. That's the tension here. Like, we, you'll remember Rimsky and Veronuka in their discussion earlier mentioned that this is kind of dangerous, what they're doing. And they're not quite sure what Lakotiev was up to booking Woland in the first place. Um, the idea that this is black magic and its exposure should comfort the Soviet, like, authorities. But it is typically not considered terribly safe to put on a show of black magic to put on any kind of show that insinuates the supernatural that is verboten in soviet society so they are running fairly close to danger here and that notice that bengalski is sort of self-conscious about this he feels that danger and that's why he tends to emphasize here this isn't about a magic show this is not supposed to surprise and amaze you it is supposed to be a celebration of technique, prestidigitation as an art form, nothing more. No one's going to be fooled, no one's going to think that they're being, you know, ensorcelled or something. No one is actually performing any black magic, God forbid, because such a thing does not exist. All we're here for is to watch Wolin perform some tricks that we all know are tricks, and then explain how the tricks are performed. Okay? Okay. But notice, even Bulgakov is, like, mocking him for this. Um, in the very next paragraph, after uttering all this claptrap, Bengalski pressed his palms together and waved them in greeting through the slit of the curtain, which caused it to part with a soft rustle. Like, Bulgakov is quick to say that Bengalski is uttering nothing but claptrap. 
um, nonsense. It's partially because it's just banter, like this is what any MC is going to do while, you know, performing a show or something. But at the same time, it's especially claptrap because it is, in fact, in this case, nonsense. We know, we've seen, that Woland is performing legit, honest-to-God black magic. Not prestidigitation, not fancy parlor tricks. He's the real deal. He is Satan. He is, you know, the prince of magic. He is as solid a proof of the supernatural as exists, as we saw from the seventh proof, when he, you know, pre both predicted and perhaps enacted Berlioz's decapitation earlier on in the story. But notice, too, the way that Woland enters, and notice the sort of M.O. he establishes right from the outset here. The entrance of the, of the magician with his long assistant and the cat, who came on stage on his hind legs, pleased the audience greatly. An armchair for me, Woland ordered in a low voice, and that same second an armchair appeared on stage, no one knew how or from where, in which the magician sat down. Tell me, my gentle fagot. Woland inquired of the checkered clown, who evidently got another appellation than Koroviev. What do you think? The Moscow populace has changed significantly, hasn't it? All right. So let's get this out of the way first. Yes, I realize that Koroviev has somehow picked up this random name from nowhere, and it bears alarming similarity to a particularly vicious slur against homosexuals. Um... Bulgakov is not thinking about this at all. I see no evidence anywhere from any of the sites that he is, like, making a slur here. This is just his secondary name. It may, as I've mentioned before, be a reference to man or to some other Faustian literature where Koroviev could feature. I don't know. I'm not terribly interested. And again, I don't think Bulgakov is either. So we're just going to call it an unhappy accident for our purposes throughout this chapter, and I will go on pronouncing it as fagot um and we'll just have to ride that um second though notice Woland is first off performing magic from the outset notice the audience's reaction as well like first off they come on stage with the cat on its hind legs because you know behemoth is always showing off and being a giant ham um and everyone is excited for it. They clap eagerly. They please the audience greatly. This is what they're here for. Notice that Bengalski has delivered this whole long speech about black magic and its exposure, appreciating technique. We all know that black magic is nonsense. The people don't seem to agree. Like, they are excited to see wonders. They're excited to see Behemoth show up walking on his hind legs. They're excited to see Woland just say, I want an armchair, and an armchair appears out of nowhere to, to like, satisfy his will. Um, this is all what they are here for. All of those things that Bengalski was saying is nonsense to the audience. They want the magic. They want the spectacle. They want the awe. They want shock and surprise and mysticism and supernatural affairs that's why bengalski is worried like as much as bengalski seems to suggest yeah we're all on the same page we are all agree that magic is nonsense the reason why he's saying that is to try and persuade these people who are obviously here for a spectacle that they're not here for a spectacle 
on the one hand, this is trying to keep the audience from, you know, buying into whatever tricks Woland is about to perform. On the other hand, it is meant to reassure all of the bigwigs in the audience who are listening and watching and who are potentially nervous at the prospect of the people getting a hold of this dangerous, these dangerous ideas. Bengalski is playing a very dangerous game here, and he knows it. He's scared. And as we've seen before, when these middle managers and, and like, uh, sort of bourgeois party hopefuls get scared, they start getting stupid, too. And Bengalski is no exception. But notice, too, what Woland is actually saying here. Like, notice even the way that he conducts himself. He doesn't come on stage and it's like, Ladies and gentlemen, tonight I have prepared for you an evening of mysticism. No. There's no showmanship at all. Like, Woland is just sitting on stage as though he's sitting back in apartment number 50 with his pals, and notice that he strikes up this conversation. What do you think, he asks Koroviev. The Moscow populace has changed significantly, hasn't it? Like, he just gets comfortable, as though they're going to have this conversation. And notice the question. Have the people of Moscow changed? This is what Bulgakov is really getting at. This is what Woland is actually here for. The question that he's asking, and remember, like, even back in chapter one, back when, you know, Berlioz told him, oh, we're all atheists now, it's perfectly acceptable to talk about this in public, none of us believe in that superstitious nonsense about Jesus or God or the devil, and Woland is like, that's fascinating information, thank you for giving me that information. Now we see why. Now we see Woland taking his seat at the front of the theater and saying, have the people of Moscow changed? This is Woland's big opportunity to assess, to look at the people of Moscow and judge. And for that reason, we should not be thinking of this as a show where Woland is the star. This is a reversed show. The people, the audience, the half of Moscow, as Bengalski exaggerated, that's what's on display here. Woland is not performing for them. They are performing for him. He is assessing them. He is judging them, just as he's been judging this entire time. And there's going to be, you know, hijinks the same way that we've seen hijinks before. There's going to be violence the way that we've seen violence before. All of that is encapsulated in this one scene. That's what makes it so important, so sort of crucial to the integrity of the text. This is Bulgakov pulling off the gloves. It's time for us to see what Woland is here for, and it's time for us to see have the people of Moscow really changed dramatically as a result of Stalin's regime. This is an interrogation. Bulgakov is interrogating the people of Moscow, just as Woland is. So they look out. The magician looked out at the hushed audience struck by the appearance of the armchair out of nowhere. That it has, Messiah, Fagot Koroviev replied in a low voice. You're right, Woland responds. The city folk have changed greatly. Externally, that is. As has the city itself, incidentally. Not to mention their clothing. These, what do you call them, trams, automobiles, have appeared. Buses, forgot, prompted deferentially. Notice the start of the conversation is the obvious thing that has changed about Moscow. It's 
technologically up to date now. They have these fancy trams going everywhere, like the one that Behemoth jumped onto. They have buses, as Fagot points out here. And this is the first thing that Wolin talks about, but notice that it is not actually what he's after. The audience listened attentively to this conversation, thinking it was a prelude to the magic tricks. The wings were packed with performers and stagehands, and among their faces could be seen the tense, pale face of Rimsky. Now notice, Rimsky is the one whose head is really on the chopping block here. Both Lakodeyev and Veronuka have vanished. Like, after the, the first couple of preparations that they engaged in, here we are, and they're gone, and all of it has fall, fallen into Rimsky's lap. If this goes badly, it's Rimsky who's on the chopping block now. But notice, too, that, that Bengalski immediately interferes. Like, here they are, Woland and Koroviev, talking about buses, automobiles, fancy new, you know, technology for getting around the city, and Bengalski starts to sweat. The physiognomy of Bengalski, who had retreated to the side of the stage, began to show some perplexity. He raised one eyebrow slightly, and then, taking advantage of a pause, spoke. The foreign artiste is expressing his admiration for Moscow and its technological development, as well as for the Muscovites. Here Bengalski smiled twice, first to the stalls, then to the gallery. Notice the, the order there, that little detail, how he smiles first to the stalls and then to the gallery. He's specifically going to, like, the rich people in their boxes, all those party bigwigs who are here watching, and he smiles at them first, then he smiles to everybody else. But notice Wolin's response, because this is classic. This is an absolutely proof-positive example of somebody lying to cover up the situation. Wolin, Fagant, and the cat turned their heads in the direction of the Master of Ceremonies. Did I express admiration? the magician asked the checkered fagot. By no means, messire, you never expressed any admiration, came the reply. Then what is the man saying? He quite simply lied, the checkered assistant declared sonorously for the whole theater to hear, and turning to Bengalski, he added, Congrats, citizen, you done lied. Koroviev and Woland immediately call Bengalski out on this. They never expressed admiration. But Bengalski feels this obligation to speak for them, to sort of interpret what they are doing for the sake of both the bigwigs in the boxes and the audience on the floor. Bengalski can't let them do things that are unexpected. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for him. It's dangerous for them. It's dangerous for the variety theater. All of them are worried that this could go badly, that the censors won't appreciate it, that people will get disappeared by the secret police over this. And so Bengalski tries to cover... But in doing so, tells a lie, a lie that Woland and Koroviev will not tolerate. They immediately call him out on it. Citizen, you done lied. Now notice, the response here is laughter. Tittering spattered from the gallery, but Bengalski gave a start and goggled his eyes. Bengalski is not used to being taken aback. He's supposed to be, like, controlling the situation. The, and yet the situation is rapidly spinning out of his hands. He can't control Woland. Woland has the floor. Like, short of escorting him by force off stage, which, good luck with that, by the way, there's no way that he can do it. It's just spinning out of control. And notice that even in the wings, like the other performers, including Rimsky, are watching in this sort of mute horror as this is transpiring. They want to see what happens. They, too, are scared. But at the same time, they're kind of excited. 
Notice how the people in the, the gallery start to laugh. Not just laugh, but titter. Like nervous laughter. Like everyone is aware of how tense this situation, how uncomfortable it is. And here we have the entirety of Moscow society, like the uh, basically thumbnail sketch of the entire Soviet regime. You got the powerful people in the boxes watching, making sure that nothing goes wrong. You got the performers on stage, including Rimsky and Bengalski and the other middle managers who are just trying to do their jobs without getting, you know, arrested. And you've got the audience, all those people in the crowd who need to be kept in their place, and which is why the big wigs are relying on the middle managers and expecting them not to get them stirred up. This is Soviet politics in a nutshell. This is why everyone is so tense and why there is such great danger of the secret police showing up and messing things up. But notice the Woland continues. Of course, I'm not so much interested in buses, telephones, and other apparatuses, the checkered one prompted. Quite right, thank you. The magician spoke slowly in a heavy bass, as in a question of much greater importance. Have the city folk changed inwardly? Yes, that is the most important question, sir. Notice, Woland isn't interested in the buses, the trams, the automobiles, the telegraph, the telegrams, the telephone. Like, all of these things are fine, don't get me wrong, but they do not reflect the inwardness. Woland is the devil. He is interested in people the same way that the devil has always been interested in people. And the technological developments have not actually changed the people all that much. He is interested in their souls. Berlioz at the very beginning told him that the people have radically changed. They don't believe in superstition anymore. They don't believe in God anymore. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the devil. And yet, here they all are waiting to see a performance of black magic. What Woland is asking is a really important question. Have the people changed? Like, all of the, the fancy technology, all of the new pol political situation have the people at the end of the day shifted has the soviet regime made them better or has it made them worse are they different than people were before now notice at this point the audience really doesn't know what's going on there was shrugging and an exchanging of glances in the wings bengalski stood all red and rimsky was pale but here as if sensing the nascent alarm the magician said however we're talking away my dear fagot and the audience is beginning to get bored show us some simple little thing to start with so here the tricks start in earnest and notice that woland is directing them like they are supposed to do the tricks but notice why like, again, Woland is asking the questions. Woland is trying to gauge the response of the audience. The audience is what's on display here. We should not be watching Woland and his magic tricks, as fun and interesting as they may be. We should be watching the audience and its reactions, the way that Woland is watching the audience and its reactions. So they start off with some obvious prestidigitation nonsense. The audience stirred. Fagot and the cat walked along the footlights to opposite sides of the stage. Fagot snapped his fingers and with a rollicking three, four, snatched a deck of cards from the air, shuffled it, and sent it in a long ribbon to the cat. The cat intercepted it and sent it back. The satiny snake whiffled. Fagot opened his mouth like a nestling and swallowed it all card by card. After which the cat bowed, scraping his right hind paw, winning himself unbelievable applause. Class! Real class! Rapturous shouts came from the wings. Notice, 
We start with just some pretty typical, you know, prestidigitation nonsense. Like something that you can see at any magic show. Like juggling a deck of cards back and forth by like flipping it to the other person and back. And then finally forgot like swallows it all, devours it. But notice like the thing that the audience is really responding to is of course Behemoth. Because Behemoth's freaking awesome. Like you've got this giant cat on stage performing card tricks. And then at the end of it he does like the bow thing. Like he's got this real genteel bow because of course Behemoth is always a class act. And the audience loves it class what a classy cat they're shouting and notice that Fagot picks up on this and Fagot jabbed his finger at the stalls and announced you'll find that same deck esteemed citizens on citizen parchevsky in the seventh row just between a three ruble bill and a summons to court in connection with the payment of alimony to citizeness zelkova all right let's back up for a moment Notice what is actually going on here. Like, this is just another development of the trick. Yes, you know, it's a classic magician's trick to, like, not only, you know, play with a deck of cards or something, but then, like, have it mysteriously appear in somebody's pocket in the audience. Um, and typically when we, you know, see a trick like that, the way that a magician would execute this is by having somebody in the audience either, you know, planting it on people or have the person who, you know, has the deck to be a plant in the first place. But notice the specific details that Koroviev includes here. It's not just in the pocket of Citizen Parchevsky, it's in the pocket between a three-ruble bill and a summons to court in connection with the payment of alimony to citizeness Zelkova. Now, if you aren't familiar, alimony payments are what you pay for child support. In all likelihood, Parchevsky knocked up citizeness Zelkova and then for whatever reason left her, and or she left him for that matter, and he is now responsible to pay. But notice that he hasn't. It's not just like a bill, it's a summons to court because he hasn't been paying. Notice Koroviev is not just, you know, performing a magic trick. He is performing a magic trick and taking a special interest in sort of revealing Parchevsky's awful behavior. The fact that Parchevsky has been stiffing Zelkova. There's something about exposing the evil that is in the audience here. And notice that again, as I've emphasized, Woland is here specifically looking at the audience. What are they like? Have they changed? So this is of a special interest to him. But notice the response as well. There was a stirring in the stalls. People began to get up. And finally, some citizen whose name was indeed Parchevsky, all crimson with amazement, extracted the deck from his wallet and began sticking it up in the air, not knowing what to do with it. You may keep it as a souvenir, cried Fagot. Not for nothing did you say at dinner yesterday that if it weren't for poker, your life in Moscow would be utterly unbearable. Notice that apparently Parchevsky is not just a person who has some overdue alimony payments, but he's also a gambling addict. And Fagot points this out rather strongly. He quotes Parchevsky at dinner last night, which of course there's no reason why he can't, why he should know this. But notice too that at this point everyone's keen to the trick. We've seen this before. An old trick came from the gallery. The one in the stalls is from the same company. Like I said, the way that you usually perform this trick is you put a plant in the audience. You plant one of your own workers. Like, you pay somebody, like, minimum wage to sit in the audience and, you know, to show up with the deck. Notice somebody calls him out on this. But Fagot responds, you think so? In that case, you're also one of us because the deck is now in your pocket. 
There was movement in the balcony, and a joyful voice said, Right! He's got it! Here! Here! Wait! It's ten ruble bills! So notice, again, like, it's the devil and company. Of course they can perform, like, legit magic. So the guy who immediately calls them out, like, Oh, boo! I've seen this! Boo! You know, immediately he's got the deck on his person. But now it's not a deck of cards at all. Now it's a giant pack of ten ruble bills. There's money involved now. And this rather dramatically changes the situation. Those sitting in the stalls turned their heads. In the gallery, a bewildered citizen found in his pocket a bank-wrapped packet with 1,000 rubles written on it. His neighbors hovered over him, and he, in amazement, picked at the wrapper with his fingernail, trying to find out if the bills were real or some sort of magic ones. By God! They're real! Ten ruble bills! Joyful cries came from the gallery. I want to play with the same kind of deck, a fat man in the middle of the stalls requested merrily. Avec plaisir, Fagot responded, but why just you? Everyone will warmly participate. And he commanded, look up, please. One, there was a pistol in his hand. He shouted, two, the pistol was pointed up. He shouted, three, there was a flash, a bang, and all at once from under the cupola, bobbing between the trapezes, white strips of paper began falling into the theater. They twirled, got blown aside, were drawn towards the gallery, bounced into the orchestra and onto the stage. In a few seconds, the rain of money, ever thickening, reached the seats, and the spectators began snatching at it. Hundreds of arms were raised. The spectators held the bills up to the lighted stage and saw the most true and honest-to-God watermarks. The smell also left no doubt. It was the incomparably delightful smell of freshly printed money. The whole theater was seized, first with merriment, and then with amazement. The word, money, money, hummed everywhere. There were gasps of ah, ah, and merry laughter. One or two were already crawling in the aisles, feeling under the chairs. Many stood on the seats, trying to catch the flighty, capricious notes. So, as soon as this one random citizen shouts out that the whole thing's a hoax, he discovers a giant packet of money, not a deck of cards, in his wallet. And right after that, people start calling out, well, I want to participate in this. And Kuroviev Fagot is like, yes, let's do that. And makes money rain from the ceiling. Like just tons and tons of 10 ruble bills and various denominations just all over the place. And people are, as you would expect, freaking out about it. Like you've got people climbing over sheets, like grabbing under the chairs. Like it's money. So it just like flutters and goes every which way. It's very difficult to predict. And as a result, pandemonium ensues. Notice too that the cops are getting a little worried about this. Perplexity was gradually coming to the faces of the policemen, and performers unceremoniously began sticking their heads out from the wings. In the dress circle, a voice was heard, What are you grabbing at? It's mine! It flew to me! And another voice, Don't shove me, or you'll get shoved back! And suddenly there came the sound of a whack. At once a policeman's helmet appeared in the dress circle, and someone from the dress circle was led, was, was led away. The general agitation was increasing, and no one knows where it all would have ended if Fagot had not stopped the rain of money by suddenly blowing into the air. Notice, we get awful close to a riot right here. Like, people start fighting, and a cop has to break them up. We've got, like, people from the wings, like other performers who are sort of creeping out, trying to see if they can catch any of the money. Like, people lose their shit over this, as you would expect. Like, imagine you go to a concert, and suddenly somebody starts, like, chucking $10 bills from the ceiling. Pandemonium ensues. 
Like, this is not unexpected. This is exactly what is expected. And notice that this is exactly what Woland is watching. This is what he's paying attention to. He is seeing how the people react in this case. Two young men exchanging significant and merry glances took off from their seats and made straight for the buffet. There was a hum in the theater. All the spectators' eyes glittered excitedly. Yes, yes, no one knows where it all would have ended if Bengalski had not summoned his strength and acted. Trying to gain better control of himself, he rubbed his hands, as was his custom, and in his most resounding voice spoke thus, Here, citizens, you and I have just beheld the case of so-called mass hypnosis, a purely scientific experiment proving in the best way possible that there are no miracles in magic. Let us ask Maestro Wolin to expose this experiment for us. Presently, citizens, you will see these supposed banknotes disappear as suddenly as they appeared. Notice, we almost caused a riot... And we almost caused a riot by distributing Moscow currency. Now, as I emphasized earlier, like, the Soviet ruble is inflating rapidly. It is a difficult thing to pin down, and people are sort of very self-conscious about the fact that the ruble is unstable as a source of wealth. Um, so the fact that Wolin just produces a whole bunch of money from thin air and then distributes it freely to everyone in the audience, that's going to get some attention. Like, in the immediate, we're worried about a riot. Like, that's why the policemen are suddenly, you know, breaking things up. But in the long term, all those big wings in the boxes are turning their nose down and saying, um, we can't have this. We cannot have people believe that money can just, you know, appear and disappear. We cannot have people ra randomly grabbing giant piles of money, which may or may not be real. So Bengalski tries to save the situation, as we are accustomed to him doing. He comes out and says, it's purely mass hypnosis, purely a scientific experiment, no miracles in magic, it is all just a hoax. But notice the audience is not on board for this explanation. Here he applauded, but quite alone, while a confident smile played on his face, yet in his eyes there was no such confidence, but rather an expression of entreaty. The audience did not like Bengalski's speech. Total silence fell, which was broken by the checkered fagot. So notice, Bengalski is trying to convince everyone, including himself, He's panicking. Notice that detail, a confident smile across his face, but no confidence in his eyes. He's desperately trying to save the situation. He's like, ah, it was all just a trick. It was all just mass hypnosis. Hooray for Professor Woland. Yay. And nobody's buying it. The entire audience is stone-faced. But what's more, Bengalski has made his second mistake. And this, again, is a case of so-called lying, Fagot announced in a loud, goatish tenor. The notes, citizens, are genuine. Bravo! A bass barked from somewhere on high. So here, Fagot immediately overturns it. Bengalski's like, mass hypnosis! They're not real notes! They're going to, like, disappear before your eyes any second now. And yet, Fagot immediately contradicts this. No, that was legit money. That was real money. Which makes everything so much worse for Bengalski, for Rimsky, for everybody in the theater. Of course, this accepts everyone who just got a pile of money. Notice the bravo from somewhere on high. Like, 
people are glad that they got all this money. Like, two people take off for the buffet. They're clearly going to, like, gorge themselves on this money that may or may not disappear at any moment. Um, but notice, too, that we are now fed up with Bengalski. This one, incidentally, here Fagot pointed to Bengalski, annoys me, keeps poking his nose where nobody's asked him, spoils the seance with false observations. What are we to do with him? Tear his head off! Someone up in the gallery said severely. What's that you said? Eh? Fagot responded at once to this outrageous suggestion. Tear his head off? There's an idea! Behemoth! He shouted to the cat. Go to it! Eins, wein, drei! And an unheard of thing occurred. The fur bristled on the cat's back and he gave a rending meow. Then he compressed himself into a ball and shot like a panther straight at Bengalski's chest and from there onto his head. Growling, the cat sank his plump paws into the skimpy chevalure of the master of ceremonies and in two twists tore the head from the thick neck with a savage howl. Now, notice... This is, again, a perfectly natural, like, interaction with the audience. Like, Fagot says, hey, he's lied for the second time. What should we do with Bengalski? And some jerk in the back row yells, tear his head off. You know, just think of, like, being in a baseball game and some audience member yelling, kill the umpire! Like, it's practically a cliche in its own right. Only here, Fagot takes it seriously. And Behemoth jumps at him and, like, claws his head off. Two twists, the head, like, parts off, and we get this description. The two and a half thousand people in the theater cried out as one. Blood spurted in fountains from the torn neck arteries and poured over the shirt front and tailcoat. The headless body paddled its feet somehow absurdly and sat down on the floor. Hysterical women's cries came from the audience. The cat handed the head to Fagot, who lifted it up by the air and showed it to the audience. And the head cried desperately for all the theater to hear, A doctor! Notice, for one, this is an absolutely gruesome set of details here. Like, we get the, you know, bloody, spurting torso, you know, like, sitting down awkwardly as the head goes rolling across the stage. And this is the second decapitation we've seen in this book. Like, how many decapitations are we going to get by the end of this? Um, but notice, too, that there's something absurd about it. That, you know... Like, Behemoth the giant cat has just leapt across the stage to cut off the head because some random audience member shouted, tear his head off. And notice that the head talks. First it asks for a doctor, but then Fagot, like, interrogates it. Will you pour out such drivel in the future? Fagot asked the weeping head menacingly. Never again, croaked the head. And notice the audience's reaction again. For God's sake, don't torture him. A woman's voice from a box seat suddenly rose above the clamor, and the magician turned in the direction of that voice. So what then, citizens? Shall we forgive him? Fagot asked, addressing the audience. Forgive him! Forgive him! Separate voices, mostly women's, spoke first, then merged into one chorus with the men's. What are your orders, messire? Fagot asked the masked man. Notice, here we have, again the natural reaction to what we have seen. Here we have Bengalski's head being torn off because some random jerk in the audience said to, you know, tear his head off, like probably a little tipsy, probably just a joke, but it actually happened. Immediately afterwards, after Fagot interrogates the head, people are pleading for mercy. Put the head back on. And notice Fagot turns to Woland, asks him, what should we do, messire? 
and Wolin's response is very telling. Well now, the latter replied pensively, they're people like any other people. They love money, but that has always been so. Mankind loves money, whatever it's made of, leather, paper, bronze, gold. Well, they're light-minded. Well, what of it? Mercy sometimes knocks at their hearts. Ordinary people, in general reminiscent of the former ones, only the housing problem has corrupted them. And he ordered loudly, put it the head on. Notice Wolin's thought process here, and notice how it corresponds exactly to what we've seen from the audience thus far. They're people like any other people, he concludes. They love money. We saw that. Like, as soon as Krovia produced all that money from the ceiling, they're, like, fighting each other, and they're climbing over the seats, and they're running off to spend it at the buffet. Obviously, they love money. But that's always been the case. People have always loved money. It doesn't matter what the money was or what it was made of. They love money. They're also light-minded. Like, as soon as Bengalski is making his, you know, in... in interjection saying that the money is fake somebody shouts to tear his head off obviously people aren't thinking about the consequences of their actions they don't actually take what they're saying that seriously they're light-minded but that's always been true too like i said you go to any baseball game and if the umpire makes a bad call you'll hear someone yell kill the empire but also notice mercy sometimes knocks at their hearts after bengalski has had his head torn off people cry for him to be healed, to be restored. So his conclusion is, in general, they're reminiscent of the former ones. They are ordinary people. And notice what this is saying. Notice what Bulgakov is saying here. He is saying that despite Soviet persecution, despite all of the changes, all the political changes, people are still people. Like, Fascism is bad, totalitarianism is bad, Stalinism is bad. No one's denying that. And for that matter, notice that Woolen like, clarifies this by saying only the housing problem has corrupted them. That's the issue here for Bulgakov. It's not, you know, tyrants and governments and, you know, technology and all of this stuff. It's the housing problem. There aren't enough houses, and people are freaking out about this. They're turning into monsters in order to protect their apartments. They are getting especially greedy, especially vindictive, especially mean. But that's it. That's the only reason. Like, totalitarian governments have existed before. Yes, Stalin was bad. Yes, Hitler was bad. But were they as bad as, like, Caligula in the Roman Empire? Were they as bad as some of the particularly awful kings of Europe or, or France? You know, think back to Louis Fourteenth. He was a horrible tyrant. He was fairly benevolent, like... You know, as much as he concentrated all of the power in one place, he also sort of, you know, distributed it and treated people pretty well. But he was absolutely the same amount of tyrant as Stalin is in all likelihood. It's just less obvious then because it happened so far in the past. But Bolin knows the past. He's seen all this. He is looking through all the history we've looked at and all the history before that. And he's coming to the conclusion that Soviet Russia is bad the housing problem especially is you know turning people into monsters but they're still people they're still greedy they're still merciful they're still silly they're still light-minded they're just people at the end of the day so he tells Kuroviev, put the head on the cat aiming accurately planted the head on the neck and it sat exactly in its place as if it had never gone anywhere above all there was not even any scar left on the neck the cat brushed Bengalski's tailcoat and shirt front with his paws, and all traces of blood disappeared from them. 
Fagat got the sitting Bengalski to his feet, stuck a packet of money into his coat pocket, and sent him from the stage with the words, Buzz off, it's more fun without you. Staggering and looking around senselessly, the master of ceremonies had plotted no farther than the firepost when he felt sick. He cried out pitifully, My head! My head! Among those who rushed to him was Rimsky. The master of ceremonies wept, snatched at something in the air with his hands, and muttered, Give me my head! Give me back my head! Take my apartment! Take my paintings! Only give me back my head! Notice, the only one who truly suffers here is Bengalski. Like, the cries of mercy from the audience, they definitely put the head back on. Bengalski is restored, so to speak. But he is still punished. Woland is not merciful. That is not his thing. He is the devil, remember. Mercy is not his department. We'll see him say that explicitly later. He punishes Bengalski for his lies, just as he punished Berlioz, just as he punished Lakodiev, just as he punished Veronuka, just as Pilate is in all likelihood punished for succumbing to the pressures of his position and lying, performing injustice. Bengalski may have his head back, but psychologically, he still feels like it's wrong. And we're actually going to see him in the next chapter. Like, when... Uh, the mysterious master comes and visits Ivan Homeless in his, his insane asylum cell. He mentions that there are two other new additions to the asylum. One of which we should recognize because he keeps muttering about banknotes and the ventilation. That's Nikonor Ivanovich, the guy who, you know, w- w- ran the apartment complex where Woland and company have taken up shop and who have, has been stuck with speculating foreign currency. But he also sees Bengalski. Um, he like there's a new arrival as he's talking to homeless and apparently this new arrival keeps chattering about how his head's been taken off that's Bengalski Bengalski also ends up in the asylum and he deserves it he too has been lying all night long he too has denied what he has seen he refuses to tell the truth because he's afraid to now, what follows after this is the ladies' shop, and I don't want to get too deeply into the ladies' shop right now. We'll end up talking about that a little bit more later on um, when the consequences of the ladies' shop becomes a little bit more obvious. Um, what I do want to focus on is the end of this chapter, though. The last interaction after the ladies' shop has closed, and they're about to, to sort of, like, finish the show altogether. Notice, again, we come back to the central theme of the black magic and its exposure. Um, so on page 127, if we skip ahead that far, right after the, the lady shop is shut down, it says, And it was here that a new character mixed into the affair. A pleasant, sonorous, and very insistent baritone came from box number two. All the same, it is desirable, citizen artiste, that you expose the technique of your tricks to the spectators without delay, especially the trick with the paper money. It is also desirable to the master of ceremonies return to the stage. The spectators are concerned about his fate. The baritone belonged to none other than that evening's guest of honor, Arkady Apollonovich Semplerov, chairman of the Acoustics Commission of the Moscow Theatres. So here we have a bigwig. Some chairman of the Acoustics Commission. And notice, what the hell is an Acoustics Commission? Like... Acoustics is the way that sound, like, travels through the air, and you usually talk about, like, acoustics in, like, a theater to, like, design it so the, you know, the echo and the the sound quality is really good, like, at every point in the theater. 
what the hell is he doing here? Like, he doesn't have anything to do with the actual, like, performances. If he is interested in the acoustics, what does that mean? That he just, like, goes to shows and makes sure that the sound is working properly? Like, this is a bullshit position that Arkady Apolonovich has. And in all likelihood, he is a bigwig party member with a trumped-up position earning some really impressive salary because he's actually just a party official. In all likelihood, his job is to report on these sorts of theatrical events to the party. And notice that his question is very pointed to that. He wants Woland and Kroviev to expose the technique of your tricks to the spectators, especially the trick with the paper money. Remember, this was all supposed to be black magic and its exposure. And at this point, we've seen a whole lot of black magic and no exposure. Or have we? And this big shot, this, like, huge big wig party member with his bullshit title is holding them to account for it. He, too, is going to be reporting on this. He's probably the one who's going to be deciding who's getting fired at the end of the night. And notice, too, that he also asks about Bengalski, even though he's been, like, taken to the hospital at this point. But, of course, Kuroviev is fine with this. We get this description, though. Arkady Apolonovich was in his box with two ladies, the older one dressed expensively and fashionably, the other one young and pretty, dressed in a simpler way. The first, as was soon discovered during the drawing up of the report, was Arkady Apolonovich's wife, and the second was his distant relation, a promising debutante who had come from Saratov and was living at the apartment of Arkady Apolonovich and his wife. Pardon, Fagot replied. I'm sorry, there's nothing here to expose. It's all clear. So notice... Bengalski has been insisting all night that it's all trickery. It's all deception. It's all prestidigitation. No actual black magic. It's just a matter of time until it's exposed. Here is Arkady Apolonovich saying, expose the black magic. And of course, because Kuroviev is the devil and is working with the devil's retinue, responds, no, there's no trick to it. It's just legit black magic. There's nothing to expose. It's all clear. No, excuse me, the exposure is absolutely necessary. Without it, your brilliant numbers will leave a painful impression. The mass of spectators demands an explanation. Notice that Apolonovich, like Bengalski, insists that the audience needs an explanation, that they demand an explanation. Unlike Bengalski, Apolonovich has a different authority when he says this. Bengalski is scared. And Golsky is trying to explain it so people like Arkady Apolonovich aren't mad at him. Arkady Apolonovich is the one getting mad. The mass of spectators, the impudent clown interrupted some player of, doesn't seem to be saying anything. But in consideration of your most esteemed desire, Arkady Apolonovich, so be it. I will perform an exposure, but to that end will you allow me one more tiny number? So notice Kuroviev responds the way that they've responded to Bengalski the whole night. No, you are lying. Look around. Nobody is demanding an explanation. All those people who just got their beautiful women's clothing, who are sitting on giant packets of 10-ruble bills that fell from the sky, they don't want their dreams, you know, like, upset. They don't want to believe that it's all just going to disappear, that it's all mass hypnosis. They're perfectly happy with the show. They do not want an explanation. They do not buy into your party line of there is no supernatural anything. Arkady Apolonovich is insisting on this not because he believes it. He's insisting on it in order to keep the people in line. And Kroviev calls him out on this. 
Why not, Arkady Apolonovich replied patronizingly, but there must be an exposure. Very well, very well, sir, and so allow me to ask, where were you last evening, Arkady Apolonovich? At this inappropriate and perhaps even boorish question, Arkady Apolonovich's countenance changed and changed quite drastically. Last evening, Arkady Apolonovich was at a meeting of the Acoustics Commission, Arkady Apolonovich's wife declared very haughtily, but I don't understand what that has got to do with magic. So notice, Arkady Apolonovich freaks out when Koroviev asks him this question, and his wife jumps in to say that he was at a meeting of the Acoustics Commission, which, as we have already argued, is probably a bullshit institution. But notice Koroviev's response. Oui, madame, Fagot agreed. Naturally, you don't understand. As for the meeting, you are not, you are totally deluded. After driving off to the said meeting, which incidentally was not even scheduled for last night, Arkady Apolonovich dismissed his chauffeur at the Acoustics Commission building on clean ponds, the whole theater became hushed, and went by bus to Yelokovskaya Street to visit an actress from the regional itinerant theater, Melitsa Andreevna Pokobotko, whom he, whom, with whom he spent some four hours. That is, Arkady Apolonovich was not in an acoustics meeting last night. He was having an affair with a young actress. Eee! Someone cried out painfully in the total silence. Arkady Apolonovich's young relations suddenly broke into a low and terrible laugh. It's all clear, she exclaimed, and I've long suspected it. Now I see why that giftless thing got the role of Louisa. And swinging suddenly, she struck Arkady Apolonovich on the head with her short and fat, violent umbrella. Meanwhile, the scoundrelly forgot, alias Koroviev, was shouting, Here, honorable citizens, is one case of the exposure Arkady Apolonovich so importunately insisted on. And pandemonium ensues. But notice the insistence here, the detail that Koroviev drops for us. This is the exposure. Let's back up. Remember when we talked about this whole thing, this whole performance that Woolen was putting on, it was black magic and its exposure. And as a consequence, everybody is expecting you're going to perform some magic tricks and then you're going to explain how they're done. You're going to expose them. You're going to show us the technique behind them, as Bengalski emphasizes. But what is being exposed here for real? The exposure we've seen has been Citizen Petrushevsky, the guy who has the alimony summons and who is revealed as a gambling addict halfway through the show. Here we have Arkady Apolonovich insisting, we must have an exposure, we must have an exposure, and Koroviev gives him an exposure. You were not, in fact, at the Acoustics Commission. You were stupping some young actress in order to get her a fancy role. You were abusing your position of authority just like all of these other people that we have been dealing with. The insinuation here is that we have, in fact, seen black magic and its exposure. It's just that Woland isn't the one performing it. The black magic on display is the Soviet power structure. All of these characters who have been, you know, secretly enjoying the benefits of their position, Nikonor Ivanovich enjoying all the bribes from all the people trying to move up in the apartment, Stiopa Lakodeev, who's been sleeping with women because of his position of power, and now Arkady Apolonovich, who's doing the same, even Bengalsky, who, you know, lies through his teeth to the audience, that's the black magic here. The magician in this theater is not Woland, Woland just does what his nature is. He is the devil. He does what he does. It is as simple as that, as Koroviev puts it. There's nothing to reveal. 
but Arkady Apolonovich is a magician, has been performing real black magic, black magic that is harmful and dangerous and destructive, black magic that has ensorcelled and enchanted the entire people of Moscow, all these Soviet citizens deathly afraid, like Bengalsky, to let the truth come to light. And yet, it's Koroviev and Woland and company that exposes it. We saw everything they promised. Black magic, i.e. this whole Soviet structure and this mode of paranoia throughout the entire theater, and its exposure. It is revealed. In fact, it is all lies. All insubstantial nonsense. All just pandering and posturing for the sake of keeping powerful people in power. That's what Bulgakov is doing here. And that's what Woland is doing here. To expose the black magic. To reveal the underlying nature of people. Which isn't really all that different. It's still just powerful people being powerful people. It's just that they've cast this enchantment about themselves. I am guiltless. I am blameless. Which is nonsense. But as long as everybody believes it. As long as everyone is too terrified to say otherwise. It persists. And notice even the way that it's introduced by Bulgakov here, that there was, in fact, a report afterwards. Um, like, it, it emphasizes in this paragraph, the first, as it was soon discovered during the drawing up of the report, like, it's clear that this becomes a scandal. Everyone investigates what happens here. It is exposed, in short. Exposure is everything that the devil is doing here in Moscow. As much as he's playing a lot of great practical jokes, and it is so much fun to watch all of these awful people get their comeuppance in one way or another. Bengalsky gets decapitated, Lakotiev gets shuttled off to Yalta, Veronuka will find out. As much fun as it is to see all these people get what they deserve, at the end of the day, what Woland is doing is exposing evil. Exposing black magic. It's just not the way we usually think of it. This is human magic, human black magic not supernatural, demonic black magic. And yet Woolen seems to think that, you know, card tricks and making money appear from the sky is just pranks, whereas what these people are doing is actually dangerous and destructive. And nowhere is this more obvious than in the next chapter. The hero enters. Now, I realize I've already talked on for quite a while and I'm already running short of time here, so we're going to do the 10-15 minute version of the history of the master. Um, in short, we get this interaction between Homeless and the master, who is apparently another inmate of the asylum, but who, through some sort of ingenuity, has run off with the keys and now can like hop all over the balcony and get from room to room. So he's just visiting. Um, he apparently just does this. And we get this long story from him. And before I get into the story, I just do want to emphasize one specific detail. Um, namely, namely that the master considers himself a novelist. And one of the first interactions he has with Homeless is to ask him what his profession is. And we, we get this fairly crazy discussion. Um, because Homeless admits that he is a poet. Um, so notice, like, having thus reprimanded Ivan, the guest inquired, your profession? Poet, Ivan confessed, reluctantly for some reason. The visitor became upset. Ah, just my luck, he exclaimed, but at once reconsidered, apologized, and asked, and what is your name? Homeless. Oh, oh, the guest said, wincing. What, you mean you dislike my poetry? Ivan asked with curiosity. I dislike it terribly. And what have you read? 
Oh, I've never read any of your poetry, the visitor exclaimed nervously. Then how can you say that? Well, what of it? The guest replied, as if I haven't read others. Or else, maybe there's some miracle? Very well, I'm ready to take it on faith. Is your poetry good? You tell me yourself. Atrocious. Ivan suddenly stuck, spoke boldly and frankly. Don't write any more, the visitor asked beseechingly. I promise and I swear, Ivan said solemnly. Notice that just as we saw with Ryukin, like many chapters ago, as we discussed in the last lecture, Ivan admits his poetry is garbage. And the master assumes his poetry is garbage. Like, he never has to read a line of it. He just assumes that it is the case because the entire Soviet mass elite production line does not produce good poetry. Just as we saw with Berlioz and Homeless in the initial discussion, nobody cared whether or not Ivan's poem was good or bad. What they cared about was, did it conform to state standards? Did it, in fact, present Jesus in the appropriate state-approved light? And as a consequence, the assumption that Bulgakov is sort of working off of here is that all poetry is awful when it's produced by the Soviet regime because it can't say anything substantial, because nobody believes in what they're writing. They're all just like Ryukin trying to get the fancy dachas, the fancy apartments, the fancy, you know, perks of living at Griboyadov's. So he assumes that Homeless is a bad poet, and Homeless admits outright that he is a bad poet, because Homeless has at least grown up at this point. Homeless is not afraid to speak the truth, at least not in this asylum anyway. But after this exchange, we get this discussion. Um, Homeless explains everything that has happened to him at this point, and the master is enraptured by this story. Unlike all the people who have dismissed him for being crazy, the master believes him. And in fact, the master explains it to him. On the one hand, the master seems to know who Woland is, seems to know that he is the devil, and even sort of like chides Ivan for not picking up on it. Um, at one point, Ivan says, you know, that can't be, he doesn't exist. And the master responds, good heavens, anyone else might say that, but not you. You were apparently one of his first victims. You're sitting, as you yourself understand, in a psychiatric clinic, yet you keep saying he doesn't exist? Really, it's strange. Ivan is called out on this. Partially because Ivan has, to this point, you know, been told over and over again, like, he doesn't exist. No, like, don't believe in him. And this is the old Ivan, as we find out. Like, Ivan is splitting into the old Ivan and the new Ivan, and the old Ivan is beside himself, cannot reconcile what he's been told with what he has seen, whereas the new Ivan is starting to take it in stride. The new Ivan is growing out from under the oppressive perspectives imposed on him by the Soviet regime. Um, likewise, the master is also very interested in the story about Pilate. In fact, at one point he shouts, Oh, how I guessed, how I guessed it all! As though he was actually aware of everything that Woolen tells him. And notice that he confirms this later on in his story as well. Like, the master starts in and tells us this long story about his past. Like, the rest of the chapter, which is a good, like, half of today's reading is devoted to this story. And in it, we see this fairly interesting change in events. We've got the master, who is apparently a noted scholar of sorts. He's studied a whole bunch of stuff. He's got, you know, all these languages under his belt. Um, and he, you know, was a historian by education, as he says. Used to work in the Moscow museums. But recently, he came, rather astonishingly, into a whole bunch of money. Just think, one day he won 100,000 rubles. 
Imagine my astonishment, the guest in the black cap whispered, when I put my hand in the basket of dirty laundry, and lo and behold, it had the same number as in the newspaper. A state bond, he explained. They gave it to me at the museum. So he wins 100,000 rubles. He basically, like, quits his job, buys a bunch of books, gets a relatively decent apartment. Like, not huge. We're talking about, like, two rooms here, but he's got it all to himself, which is pretty freaking luxurious at this point. Um, he has this little basement apartment and he starts writing he starts writing a novel about Pontius Pilate and notice the novel that he's writing about Pontius Pilate is the very same novel we have read about Pontius Pilate that Bulgakov presented to us in the second chapter and which we'll pick up on again in the 16th in a little while and then conclude considerably later on with the book but it's shortly after this as he's working on his novel that he meets this girl they stumble across one another and she's like carrying these yellow flowers for some reason. And, you know, he she asks if he likes the flowers and he says, well, he prefers roses and she immediately throws them away. They fall in love immediately. Like we even get this line from Bulgakov, this fairly amazing line. Love leaped out in front of us like a murderer in an alley, leaping out of nowhere and struck us both at once as lightning strikes, as a finished knife strikes. They fall madly in love with each other. Now, as it happens, they're both married. Like, she, it's a kind of a big deal because she's, like, living with her husband and, you know, he expects her, and as a result, she's sort of limited in her visits. He's apparently married, but he honestly can't even remember who he was married to. Like, he gets really, not even cagey, but just sort of uncomfortable when Ivan asks about his wife, and he, again, can't even remember who she is. Like, he forgot about her. She was so unimportant. Um, which I suppose we ought not to read into because Bulgakov certainly doesn't emphasize it very often. So now we have the master writing his novel in the basement and his lover is absolutely entranced by it. And we don't get any names for either of them. It is the master and the mystery woman as far as we're concerned at this point. Like Ivan even asked, but who is she? And, he, and the master responds, he would never tell that to anyone and went on with his story. Like, there's something sacred in the fact that he refuses to reveal her identity. Like, he takes this romance, this relationship, extremely seriously. And he also behaves as though he is in danger, even as he tells this. Um, now, the trouble is, she encourages him to publish this novel once he finally finishes it. Which, you know, you would expect from your loved ones. Like, they should encourage you in your pastime and you're following your dream. And this is absolutely something that has sort of been eating the master up. This is his dream. But he immediately runs into problems as soon as he does. So if you look on page 140, about halfway down the page, it says, And I went out into life holding it in my hands, the manuscript, and then my life ended, the master whispered, and drooped his head, and for a long time nodded the woeful black cap with the yellow letter M on it. He continued his story, but it became somewhat incoherent. One could only understand that some catastrophe had then befallen Ivan's guest. For the first time I found myself in the world of literature, but now, when it's all over and my ruin is clear, I recall it with horror. The master whispered solemnly and raised his hand. Yes, he astounded me greatly. Ah, how he astounded me! Who? Ivan whispered barely audibly, fearing to interrupt the agitated narrator. Why, the editor, I tell you. The editor! 
Yes, he read it all right. He looked at me as if I had a swollen cheek, looked sidelong into the corner, and even tittered in embarrassment. He crumpled the manuscript needlessly and grunted. The questions he asked seemed crazy to me. Saying nothing about the essence of the novel, he asked me who I was, where I came from, and how long I had been writing, and why no one had heard of me before. And he even asked what, in my opinion, was a totally idiotic question, who had given me the idea of writing a novel on such a strange theme? Finally, I got sick of him and asked directly whether he would publish the novel or not. Here he started squirming, mumbled something, and declared that he could not decide the question on his own, that other members of the editorial board had to acquaint themselves with my work, namely the critics Latunsky and Ariman and the writer Mstislav Lavrovich. Now, things spin out of control after this meeting. So the master gives a copy of his manuscript to the editor, the editor hedges a bit, says, well, we can't say for sure whether we're going to publish it. We're, I have to give it to, you know, these other critics, Araman and Latunsky, and this other writer. This is the committee that decides what we're going to publish. So once we all get together and talk about it, then maybe we'll publish it. But notice, too, that the questions that he's asking here are very pointed. Who are you? Where did you come from? How long have you been writing this? Who told you to write this? There's suspicion here. And remember, as I said before, this is a novel about Pilate, about Jesus. And as we saw with Homeless, it's dangerous to write about Jesus at this time period in this place. Homeless was instructed by Berlioz, do not write anything that makes Jesus seem realistic, even if he does seem evil. Write it as though he doesn't exist at all. But notice how this accelerates. Notice the story never gets published. Like, it never goes to print. Nobody ever reads it. The public never gets a hold of it. But it gets bad for the master all the same. Further on, as Ivan heard, something sudden and strange happened. One day our hero opened a newspaper and saw in it an article entitled An Enemy Sortie by the critic Araman in which Araman warned all and sundry, sundry that he, that is, our hero, had attempted to foist into print an apology for Jesus Christ. Two days later, in another newspaper of the signature of Mitslav Labrovich, appeared another article in which its author remained striking and striking hard at pilotism and at the icon dauber who had ventured to foist it into print. Notice, even though it hasn't been printed, all of the people who have read the manuscript at this point, the critics, the writer, they all start attacking the master in print, even though there's no like actual published article. This is something that happened fairly often in Soviet Russia. If somebody tried to get a work of art into print that was against what the communist censors or what the communist party believed, you would get thinkers speaking up against them in order to protect themselves. So we've got Latunsky and Araman and Mitslav all emphasizing this guy is a menace. He is trying to pressure us with pilotism, this invented nonsense word as though he's creating his own ideology. He is writing an apology for Jesus Christ, which is not at all what's going on there. Remember, as we read in chapter two, um, our, you know, the master is emphasizing that Matthew Levi is a liar. The gospels are lies. Jesus was a good man, but just a good man. And that's all. And if anything, there's an explanation, an argument to be made that that would be even more effective as the communist party's perspective. But since it does not align with what they current believe, things get ugly, things get bad. And the master gets frightened. So frightened, in fact, that he ultimately decides to burn his own manuscript. And notice the way that Bulgakov describes this. 
The fire roared in the stove, rain lashed at the windows, then the final thing happened. I took the heavy manuscript of the novel and the draft notebooks from the desk drawer and started burning them. This was terribly hard to do because written on paper burns reluctantly. Breaking my fingernails, I tore up the notebooks, stuck them vertically between the logs, and ruffled the pages with the poker. At times, the ashes got the best of me, choking the flames, but I struggled with them, and the novel, though stubbornly resisting, was nevertheless perishing. Familiar words flashed before me. The yellow climbed steadily up the pages, but the words still showed through it. They would vanish only when the paper turned black, and I finished them off with the poker. Notice the pain here, as Bulgakov writes it. He has to fight with the manuscript in order to destroy it. It's too strong. It's too tough. Paper... The, written on paper burns reluctantly, he says. He has to tear them up, breaking his fingernails in the process. He has to stab them repeatedly with the poker. This is violent, this act of destroying his manuscript. And notice why he's doing it. He needs to destroy all the evidence, so when the secret police come to the door, he can deny that he ever wrote anything that was pilotist, that was an apology for Jesus Christ. Which is true, he never wrote any of that stuff, but all these critics are now getting on his case. They're putting him in danger. They're condemning him, and therefore they are threatening him. They're bringing the police down on his head, and that's ultimately what happens. Now, Bulgakov does not talk about it directly, because Bulgakov can't talk about it directly. He, too, is afraid. But notice the description on page 146. He speaks into Ivan's ear so softly that what he told him was known only to the poet. A quarter of an hour after she left me, there came a knock at my window. And what the patient whispered into Ivan's ear evidently agitated him very much. Spasms repeatedly passed over his face. Fear and rage swam and flitted in his eyes. The narrator pointed his hand somewhere in the direction of the moon, which had long since left the balcony. Only when all sounds from outside ceased to reach them did the guest move away from Ivan and begin to speak more loudly. Yes, and so in mid-January, at night, in the same coat but with the buttons torn off, I was huddled with cold in my little yard. Three months transpire. From October to January. And we don't know what happens there. His voice goes too short. But notice that he comes back and he's wearing the same outfit, but with the buttons torn off. This is typical of people returned by the secret police after being tortured and interrogated. You take off the buttons to prevent people from hurting themselves with them, from swallowing them, or trying to choke on them, or to use it as a way of, like, hurting themselves, like cutting their own throat. The police take the master because of these insinuations, because of these suggestions, they interrogate him and they torture him. And he's gone for three months. And then they dump him back in his yard practically naked and he looks into the apartment and finds that somebody else has taken it while he's been out. Because of course they have. You know, it's Soviet Russia. Of course that apartment got loaned or rented out as quickly as possible. It was too nice otherwise. And notice, too, that he can't go back to his beloved at this point. She encouraged him, and she regrets it. For She regrets that because, again, as much as she was supporting him, she ultimately got him into this horrible situation where, she's, where he's terrified and uncomfortable and ultimately abducted by the secret police. But notice, too that this is not an isolated incident. In fact, Bulgakov is writing this section from experience. Bulgakov, too, wrote the novel 
that we see here. This novel about Pilate, this novel about Jesus as a good man, but just a man, and Pilate's difficulties in dealing with his, you know, imperial regime and being afraid with the Caesars. Bulgakov, too, came under fire from various critics who never published the work, but accused him of being sympathetic to Christianity all the same. Bulgakovism was a popular thing to condemn in the 50s and 60s. And for that reason, Bulgakov burned his manuscript. He destroyed it. It was gone. When he ultimately wrote The Master of Margarita, he created it all again from scratch and carefully and ultimately, this book did not get published until long after Bulgakov had died. It did not enter, like, Soviet marketplaces until after it had actually been translated into French, been sort of spirited out of the country, and made, you know, important, significant contributions to French literature and American literature and so on. Like, I'm pretty sure it was the 70s or the 80s, like, decades after Bulgakov died, that the manuscript was published in Soviet Russia, and it was published heavily edited. To the point that there's still a good bit of question about textual history, like which one is the more reliable manuscript. Um, our version of the Master and Margarita is actually like a composite of both the Soviet-released censored manuscript and the original draft, which may not have reflected what Bulgakov had in mind. But the fact is, neither of them are the finished product. Like, we get an early draft and we get a heavily censored final, and that's it. Bulgakov was scared. And Bulgakov, too, panicked, burned his own manuscript, betrayed himself, in short. Notice that that's how it's framed here. This is an act of cowardice. Bulgakov and the master share this same desire to tell the truth that we've seen from Pilate, that we've seen from many of the characters, and yet it is stifled. The ability to tell the truth is curtailed because these people are scared for their lives they are faced with the alternative of becoming Ryukin. You know, telling lies and being successful and doing just what the censors want you to do and having no artistic integrity and ultimately realizing that there's no point in your life. These are the, this is the alternative. You try and get the truth out there and maybe die trying. But Bulgakov does not have the confidence and neither does the master. They don't go through with it, in short. They panic. They destroy their own manuscripts. This is why the master is the hero, as late as he appears in this story. And this is why Pilate is the obvious counterpoint here. Like, Bulgakov will actually draw several comparisons between the master and Pilate over the course of the rest of the novel. Importantly, both of them are faced with this decision. They're both faced with the opportunity to tell the truth, and they both faint-heartedly reject it. They both, in the name of saving their own skins, ultimately give up. It's different from Bengalski and Likodeyev and Berlioz, who legit go out of their way to lie to save their own skins. Rather, it means that they don't stand up for themselves. They don't take matters into their own hand. They don't do what needs to be done. It's slightly different, and therefore requires different justice but it means that it does require justice. This is the question that Bulgakov is asking. If the devil is in Moscow punishing people for their behavior, for, you know, hurting each other, what punishment does the master get? 
What punishment does Bulgakov get for faint-heartedly destroying the truth rather than let it be told and potentially incriminating himself? But there's one more dimension here. One more thing that we should definitely look at, which is kind of staring us in the face right now. The Master is our main character. And the Master is Faust. Like, notice the trajectory of his life. You know, he's an important scholar. He knows all these languages. He is at the top of his field. He gets a sudden, mysterious windfall, in this case, the 100,000 rubles. And all of a sudden, he's possessed of this idea, this thing that he needs to publish, this thing that he needs to get out here, which, of course, is a story that we have first heard in the mouth of the devil, reported by the mouth of the devil, as truth. He meets a beautiful girl, they fall madly in love, and she supports him and tries to, you know, encourage him to get his stuff out there. But in this case, he's derailed. We don't get him hanging out with Woland, you know, going around painting the town red, causing trouble, conjuring up spirits, whatever. Instead, he gets arrested by the secret police for trying to disseminate the truth. And yet, that's what Faust is kind of always about. Like, what's the purpose of all that secret knowledge that Faust has always sought if he can't share it with people? This is a Faust story. This is the master selling his soul to the devil, and that actually is the least damaging soul-selling act that he does. Selling his soul to Woland basically meant that he had access to secret knowledge, to the truth. The greater, more damaging choice that he makes is to reject that truth. To be given a glimpse of what is real insight, the truth of Pilate and Yeshua, and then to ultimately decide to bury it rather than incriminate himself. That's where he truly sells his soul here. Because Woland, as much as he is the devil, is a force for good in Soviet Russia. He exposes black magic. That is his primary responsibility. Strip off all these layers of lies and lay bare the soul of the Russian people. Working with Woland is not necessarily a crime in this novel. And therefore, Faust is not necessarily evil. What he is, is scared. He can't go through with it. Working with the devil may have been his lot, but he ultimately couldn't follow through. And that's why he got busted by the secret police and is now living in an asylum rather than trying to peddle his manuscript and make sure the truth is heard. He's doing a little bit better by telling it to Ivan, by having this discussion with Homeless, who up until this point has also been trying to like desperately get the story of Pilot out there. But it still isn't good enough. And the master knows this. And the master is beating himself up for his cowardice. He could leave the asylum at any time. He went voluntarily. But where else does he have to go? His beloved, he doesn't know where she is. And he doesn't want to talk to her because he feels like he would disappoint her too much. His apartment's been taken over. So, you know, that's gone. His money is gone. He gave it all to his beloved. There's nothing left. Besides giving up. And Bulgakov is very keenly asking himself, what do I deserve for being a coward, for refusing to tell the truth? What should my punishment be? You know, we've seen all these judgments by Woland, but this one hasn't been answered yet. And this is the climax to which we are building here. What does the master, 
Pilot, Bulgakov, deserve for burying the truth rather than covering it over or being bold enough to tell it.